We're in John chapter 14, verses 8 through 14. Remind you, we are in the upper room. And Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples. Last week we saw that Thomas asked him a question, and this week Philip asked him a question. John 14, verses 8 through 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on accounts of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We ask that we might hear it, listen to it, understand it that it might make a difference in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you remember what the Rosetta Stone is? Okay, i got about eight hands here, and that's so good. Well, in case your age is catching up to you, let me refresh your memory. The Rosetta Stone was the key to deciphering the meaning of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. The Rosetta Stone was found by French troops in 1799 in Lower Egypt, and it is a big slab of black uh, basalt rock on which are carved three different accounts of the same story. One is written in Greek, one is written in phonetic Egyptian, and then one version is in the ancient hieroglyphics, that were used to decorate the tombs of uh, the ancient Egyptians. And when it was discovered that the etchings on the stone in the Greek and the Egyptian were uh, that they told the same story, it was reasonable to assume that the hieroglyphics told the same story. And so the key to unlocking the mysteries and the accounts of the ancient Egyptians was finally cracked. The Rosetta Stone today is in the British Museum in London, and without it, we still wouldn't understand the language of the ancient Egyptian culture. And as important as the Rosetta Stone uh, was to archaeologists and their understanding of the ancient Egyptians, as Christians, we needed something to provide a key for us too. And John 14 captures this encounter between Jesus and his followers, in particular, Philip. Verse 8, we read, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. When Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father, he was asking for a translation of sorts, some way for us to understand the Father, what he was like, how he acted, what it was that he wanted. 
And Jesus' reply is short and to the point. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you see it there? Jesus is claiming to be the translation of the eternal God into a language that people can understand. We cannot approach God as he is. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. And so what we needed was a way to understand heavenly and eternal things while we were still earth and time-bound beings. And sure, the stories of God abounded in the Old Testament, but no one had ever seen him, not really. I mean, how can you see a spirit anyway? So you see, God had to make some way that his nature could be understood by mankind. And the way he chose was to become one of us. Jesus is Ari's Rosetta Stone. He speaks both divinity and humanity to us. And in his humanity, he showed us the divine and revealed all that can be known about God to mankind. And if you feel like sometimes you struggle to understand God, well, first, you're not alone. But if you want to know what he's like, you have to look no further than the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever you can translate about Jesus reveals truth about God. So let's see how Jesus explains this to Philip. And the first thing we see is the explicit question to Christ, the explicit question to Christ, starting in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on accounts of the works themselves. Now you have to remember the context. This is Jesus' last night. He's spending his last night with his friends. Judas has already left to go out and betray Jesus and have him turned over uh, to be killed. And Jesus knows all this, and yet he remains with his friends to teach them these truths, which become truths that last uh, over 20 centuries, you know, up to this day that we read these stories. Last week, we looked at a question Jesus was asked by one of his disciples in John 14, verses 5 and 6, when Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But apparently that led to a second question, a follow-up question, this time from Philip. Not only is Jesus the way to the Father, but through him we come to know the Father. Do you see, says to Philip, that I am the revelation of the Father? It's the question that Philip asks in verse 8. And it's somewhat of a disarming question. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Lord, just show us the Father. Lord, just part the trappings of heaven and glory and give us a little glimpse of the Father. That's all we need. That's all we ask. 
Now, when Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, he said more than he knew. In seeking to see God, Philip joins this long and illustrious line of men and women uh, throughout the ages who understood that there is no greater good, no higher blessing, no experience that would be so wonderfully elevating for a human being than to just see God. You know, as he is in all of his everlasting glory. And indeed, to see God is to enter into the complete fullness of what it means to be human. We were made in God's image. We were made to see God. And we'll find the life we were made for when and only when we see him. It's the same request that Moses made. If you go all the way back uh, to the Old Testament, Moses asked that he should see the glory of God. But he was allowed to see only its after effects. This keeps falling off. Pull the string out some. I think it's just catching. And he was only allowed to see the after effects as God, if you remember the story, hit him in the cleft of a rock and covered him with his hand while he passed by. Or else Moses would be consumed and destroyed by the divine glory. And through the ages, wise men and women have hungered and thirsted for some sight of God. Knowing that there's nothing else that will finally complete and fulfill a human being. We were made for God. We were made to walk with God, to have fellowship with God as Adam did in the garden. And sin meant that we've been banished from God's presence. Our sins, Isaiah tells us, have made a separation between us and God. And yet Christ comes into the world to bridge that chasm, that separation, and to bring us back to God. And in this life, we come part way. We're given a certain sight of God. But in the world to come, believers in Christ will go the rest of the way, as close as a finite creature can come to the actual sight of God. And it's a sight, the Bible tells us, that will change us forever. Even the sight of Jesus with God's glory on him will change us. As the scripture says, 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Philip knew enough to know that if he could only see God, he would never be the same man. His desires, his loves, his loyalties would somehow just be drunk up into that vision and he would forever be a man who had seen God. And yet Jesus receives Philip's question with, is there sort of a sense of disappointment here? He says, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Have you been with me all this time, Philip, and the penny hasn't dropped? Still you don't understand. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I and my Father are one. It's an extraordinary thing to say. And Philip's problem, I think, and the text doesn't directly say this, but I'm trying to understand this, and I think somewhat it's just familiarity. Philip's been with Jesus for some time now. He's seen him teach and work miracles and perform for so long He's become familiar with him. He's become so accustomed to Jesus' power and magnificence, his beauty and his deity, it just doesn't have the same effect that it used to. 
And you think about that, and some of us, a lot of us, are in the same boat. We're the same way. Christ becomes so familiar to us, we become uh, comfortable and complacent to the point of no longer truly revering him for who he is and what he's done. Some of you here were raised in the church, and you heard Bible stories. You played with felt cutouts of Jesus. I see some smiles, so there's a few of you that did that. And he became very tame and very manageable for you. He's very familiar to you. But this is not a familiarity that breeds love and respect. It's a familiarity that breeds apathy and lukewarm hearts. Perhaps you've come to accept the historical Jesus that you know, lived a long time ago and said some things that sound pretty moral. And the problem is you have a little Jesus in your life. He's still that little felt cutout you played with in Sunday school. He's now become like a comfortable pair of jeans that just hangs out with you. And he's declawed and defanged so he doesn't hurt your feelings or disrupt your plans. And Jesus isn't going to let that stand. Look what he goes on to say in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, because of this verse, there's an extraordinary doctrine emerging out of the early church called perichorosis. We get our word choreography from it. It means the Son in the Father. It's a picture of communion and fellowship. No one knows the Father like the Son knows the Father. And no one knows the Son like the Father knows the Son. Remember what John said all the way back in chapter 1, just a mere few short weeks ago. John 1.18, this is how John puts it. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He, Jesus, has told us what the Father is like. Now, you know, children can ask the most disarming questions. Sometimes they ask very profound questions, very innocently, out of the blue, catch you completely off guard. And one of those questions is, what is God like? And you're kind of like, he's big, he's really big, you know, and you're thinking. The best and most biblical answer you can give to that question is, God is like Jesus. God the Father is like Jesus because Jesus reveals what God is like. There is nothing that is in Jesus that isn't in God. How can we know the Father? Jesus makes him known. Now Jesus spells that out with some simple statements that confirm that fact that through him we come to the Father. He says in verse 10, The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Essentially, he's saying, first, I speak the Father's words. It's interesting, in the rest of the section, Jesus is reminding them of what he's already said. There's actually nothing new here. He's already said it somewhere else in John. And he's reminding them of these things that he said in his ministry uh, with them. In John 5, he had spoken of what his relationship with the Father had been like. He said, I do the Father's works I speak the Father's words. It's as though he's employing the way in which Jesus had grown up with Joseph in the carpenter's shop. He'd watched the way that his earthly stepfather, Joseph, had worked with all the tools of the trade. 
And you can imagine Jesus being in there as a boy, as a young man, going in there, being with Joseph, saying to him, what's this for? Show me how to do what it is that you're doing here. Show me how to make that. How do I use this tool? And Jesus is saying, all the words that I speak, they're my Father's words. You know, there's a verse in Isaiah 50 I love. The prophet is picturing the coming of Jesus as the suffering servant of the Lord. And he speaks of him in this fashion, Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. He's given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain the weary with just a word. You know, as Jesus woke in the morning as a young boy, it's as though he's saying, my first thought in the morning is, what is my father teaching me? He speaks to his one who has learned perfectly in the years of apprenticeship. And what he says echoes the Father's heart. I speak the Father's words. But not only the Father's words, but the Father's works. Look at all the signs in John's Gospel that we've gone over. These all the miracles. What are they? They're signs of what the Father is like. What is the Father's purpose in the world? To restore one who is blind so he can see. To raise one who has died in order that he may live. To heal one that's been crippled in order that he may walk. Our fathers in the business of reconstruction, reconstructing a fallen and broken world. And it's the heart of the Heavenly Father that Jesus is making known. I speak the Father's words, I do the Father's works. Twice before in this gospel, the Lord has said something similar about believing in Him on the basis of the evidence of the miracles. And here saying the miracles are nonverbal signs. That as they reveal more than just that Jesus has really cool supernatural powers. They show that Jesus is, in fact, the revelation of God and his saving will to the world that he is one with the Father. Think of the miracles and all that they suggest. The turning of water into wine, the feeding of the 5,000, the opening the eyes of the blind, the raising of the dead. These are pictures of salvation such as only God can provide. Now Philip asked a fairly simple question and it's a really big answer. You know, he's probably sitting there saying, you know, you could have said, just look at me, I'm like, God, that's enough, move on. But there's so much there. But what we see next is part of Jesus' response, and in it is an implied question. And so we go to verse 12, the implied question from Christ. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, that word's used four times. Whenever you're reading a passage of scripture and you see words repeated, that's a clue. That's like a flashing red light that says, this is important. If Jesus uses the word four times, you should like circle it or highlight it or underline it and say, why is he saying this? And obviously it's important or I'm really dumb because he's saying it four times. 
That's probably all true. It is important, and I am dumb. But he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And here we find Jesus essentially telling us that I display the Father's glory, the essence of who God is, the transcendence of his being, what makes him God. I display all of that. And he said it before in chapter 13. He's repeating it now. He says in verse 12, And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. I do these works displaying the Father's glory, but when I go to the Father, greater things will be revealed. Now clearly the disciples didn't do greater miracles than Jesus did. But they did, upon the descent of the Holy Spirit, bring conviction and faith and new life to the world in a measure far beyond what Jesus, the preacher, ever accomplished. Peter brought more to faith in Christ on his one sermon on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, than Jesus may have done throughout his entire three years of ministry. Think of that day in Pentecost that we read about at the beginning of Acts. 3,000 are converted in one day from all over the known world. Parthians and Medes and uh, Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia. All these different people, think about that. I mean, apart from when Jesus was a baby, he never left Israel. He never left Palestine. Palestine, Israel is about the same size as New Jersey. Think about living your entire life in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. I know about these things. You know, Jesus never been to California. He never been to Siberia. He never been to Iraq or Syria or Iran or Egypt as an adult. And as he goes to the Father, greater works of the Father will be made manifest through his disciples through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this will take place because the Lord will go to the Father. It's the precondition of sending the Holy Spirit. So what is Jesus saying here? I'm telling you what the Father is like. My whole business is to introduce you to the Father. Jesus is saying that when you come to know Him, when you come to know Jesus, you come to know the Father. He wants to take us by the hand and lead us and introduce us to His Father in heaven and say to His Father in heaven, let me introduce John to you. Let me introduce Jane to you. Let me introduce William to you. Let me introduce Mary to you. If it was our church, it would be, let me introduce Dave to you. And let me introduce Dave to you. And let me introduce Dave to you. And, you know, that's enough days the rest of you, you know. No, just keep going. And Jesus is saying to Philip and to the disciples, when you come to know me, I am introducing you to the very heart of my Father in heaven. And even though he's leaving, Jesus will still seek to bring glory to his Father. But now he's going to do so by enabling his disciples to accomplish great things in his name. Now note the connection here. It's very important between doing greater works for the Lord in verse 12 and prayer in verse 13 and 14. The latter prayer is the method of the former, the greater works. 
look at that a little bit. When Jesus says we will do greater works, he gives us two clues to understand that. First, he says we will do greater works because I am going to the Father. He does not say that we will do greater works because I'm going to make you to be just really great. He says it's because I'm going to the Father. The very basis of our greater works is his going, which we will see in his crucifixion and resurrection. Our greater works are based in the cross. In other words, because of his death on the cross for our sins, his victory over death and sin by his resurrection, what we disciples do will be greater because we not only know who Jesus is and what he's done, but we will make known throughout the world who Jesus is and what he's done. Second, he lets us know these greater works will be the product of our fruitful prayer offered in his name. Prayers in his name are prayers that are offered in accordance with all that his name stands for. Prayers that are in line with his will as it has been revealed in his word. And the issue of greater works is not that the disciples' works are greater than Jesus' works, but that the work Jesus performs through his disciples now are greater than the works Jesus performed while on earth. How many times does our anxiety come Because we don't pray according to Jesus' name. Our prayers are not in line with who he is and what he's done. Our prayers are not in line with his will as it's been revealed in his word. And we get anxious because we don't think God is going to give us what we want. And we wonder why. We say, how come? After all, you know, I prayed in Jesus' name. And we fall into the trap of thinking that prayer is like Aladdin's lamp and Jesus is the magic genie. And if you say the magic words, you get whatever you want. And our prayers end up sounding like, you know, a line from old McDonald's farm. You know, a gimme, gimme here and a gimme, gimme there. Here a gimme, there a gimme. Everywhere a gimme, gimme. Gimme, 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 gimme. But Jesus is not a magic genie. And ending our prayers with the phrase, in Jesus' name, are not magic words. When Jesus says that whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, he is not saying that he is a cosmic vending machine that you drop in a quarter and get your candy bar. He's not the infinite pinata. You know, holds all the blessings, and you come along with your prayer in Jesus' name, which is a stick, and you hit it so the blessings fall from heaven. Doesn't work. The prayer of Jabez is not the model prayer. You can't manipulate or coerce God into doing what you want him to do if you pray a certain number of times in a certain way for a certain period of time. I mean, if that was the case, I want a new car in Jesus' name. I want a big house with tons of cash in Jesus' name. I want the women to want me in Jesus' name. The attitude of name it and claim it, as I prefer to call it, blab it and grab it, is simply not biblical. Some preachers get paid huge dollars to tell you that it's the model. And what you should do is take the stick and hit them with it. That's mean. True, but mean. Prayer is not designed to get you more stuff. The last thing we suffer from in Loudoun County is a lack of stuff. Self-included. Rich was teaching in uh, Sunday school this morning. And we read from Mark 4, and the third soil, and the thorns, they came up. 
and because of the cares of the world and uh, you know, the riches of the world and all the things that we want. And I read that and I said, I live there. That's described third soils, describing Loudoun County. We should pray and God will answer, but the prayers are always designed to be according to the will of God and for the glory of God. The writer of this gospel tells us in 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. To claim God's promise of doing greater works. I think we just saw twice God's promise of greater works being claimed. Our prayers must be in accordance with who Jesus is and what Jesus does and what Jesus says and what Jesus wants. There's another condition here in this passage and we kind of skipped over it. It's back in verse 12. And it's really the implied question part. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. See, not only are the greater works the works of Christ through us, and not only are those works based on our prayers being in accordance with who he is, they're also dependent on whether or not we truly believe. Jesus makes no mention of the amount of faith. It's not dependent of whether or not we believe in Jesus a whole lot more than other people. You don't have to believe in Jesus more than Mark. It's actually not hard to do. He would agree, shaking his head. It's simply based on whether or not we can be described as someone who believes in Jesus. Not simply intellectual agreement, but real life way down deep with our whole heart Faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And if that's not the case for you, then this passage doesn't really apply to you. And that can create terrible problems for us. C.S. Lewis exposed them. Many of you know is an amazing, amazing writer. And uh, in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, famous series of books, one of the books is called The Last Battle. And of, it's one of my favorite scenes in there. You see, in, in this book, there's a monkey, and his name is Shift. And Shift persuades a donkey. The donkey's name is Puzzle. And he persuades the donkey into wearing a lion's skin they happen to come across. Now, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a lion in there. He's kind of the main character. His name is Aslan, and he is a figure of Christ. And so he, he convinces Puzzle to put on this lion's skin, so this donkey looks like a lion. Now, this is against Puzzle's better judgment. Lion's the king of the beasts, after all, and the great lion, Aslan, uh, would probably not approve. But still... Puzzle reluctantly agrees because he says everyone knows that monkeys are clever and donkeys are not. And so Schiff's cleverness is certain for he knows that all the Narnians revere Aslan. And so he's going to make good use of this makeshift lion. 
And so with Puzzle's help, in the name of Aslan, shift turns Narnia upside down. And mayhem erupts. And there's chaos everywhere. And nobody knows what's going on. And it's just very confusing. And eventually, you know, sides are chosen and words are said. And eventually it becomes the last battle. Where all appears lost. Until, of course, the real Aslan appears. And in this splendid scene, the very first person after the battle is over, and Aslan is looking over everything and everyone, and who's the very first person that Aslan calls to himself? It's Puzzle the donkey with the fake lion skin. And Lewis, it's narrated, and it says, you've never seen a donkey look sillier or feebler than Puzzle as he walks up to the great lion, Aslan. And I use this child's tale to arouse your mind's eye, your imagination, towards something that's hard to see in our present times. See, in this scene from Narnia, the one thing that becomes clear is that truth is a person. Lewis paints this scene because the reader really feels the disparity of the moment. The Aslan you love is finally there. The battle's ended. And yet somehow you find yourself walking remorsefully with the donkey and standing in front of Aslan. Puzzle stands in front of truth himself. And as shame weighs down those ears, truth is not a metaphor he got wrong. It's not a word he stretched a little too far. Puzzle is ashamed because he misrepresented truth himself. And that's where I want your mind to linger. Jesus claimed to be the truth. It's easy, even in Christian circles, to regard this statement metaphorically. Truth today has become some sort of vacuous thing we mold into whatever we need it to be. But when truth is a person, it it is he. (coughs) It is the person, it is truth, who is seeking to mold you. It's not something you can mold in to serve your own purposes. In this case, it is Jesus who seeks to mold you. Jesus says repeatedly throughout all the Gospels, I tell you the truth. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. And you know it's truth because he also says, I am the truth. He doesn't say I have the truth. He says, I am the truth. The truth. His words require more and probe deeper than any metaphor of truth ever could. Ask yourself again, employ your imagination. When truth is a person, the person of Jesus Christ, how would your world be different? Imagine that truth, a person as real as you and me, and what you may have once seen as a distinction in matters of opinion, now become distinctions in your attitude towards a person. 
when truth is a person, you no longer face an argument demanding your approval, but a person demanding your confidence. And so what is your answer? Do you believe in the truth? Is that truth found in a person? Has your confidence, your trust, your faith been placed in that person? Because his name is Jesus and he wants to know your answer. Think about that. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, how much are we like Puzzle the Donkey? Pretending to be things we're not, dealing with truth that isn't, going along with people who we know is not doing the right thing, just being confused. And yet your word here presents us that Jesus is the truth. He is a person. He is one with the Father. That if we know Jesus, we know the Father. And we know what he's like. And Jesus wants us, wants to know if we really believe that. And so I pray this morning that you would work that faith into the lives, into the hearts and minds of everyone here this morning. That we would truly Believe that. That when we see Jesus, we see the Father. When we know Jesus, we know the Father. When we hear Jesus' words and works, we hear the words and works of the Father. And then Jesus would be able to use us. Lord, I know that none of us I certainly won't do those things on my own. We need your spirit to work in us and through us and in spite of us to accomplish your work. So do that for each one of us here. Enable us to truly believe in Jesus' name. Amen.